All right, guys, we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. Would you join me there, please? In verse 30. It's the end of the year. It's my favorite time. It's my least favorite time. You know, because it's just how it is. When everything winds down, it's kind of sad. You wish it was like this all the time with family and friends. And, and you know, I've been preaching the past couple of weeks. It doesn't have to end. We don't have to wait until Mariah Carey is uh, thawed out and playing in the supermarket for us to think it's the most wonderful time of the year. We don't have to wait. Uh, we can live in this glorious truth of Jesus' birth, the truth of what that is for us as believers. We can choose that joy every day. And, um, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of praying, a lot of praying about what I want to do next year. You know, I have plans. I have things that I have been asked to do, got classes to teach, traveling to do, services every week. But more and more, I have this desire within me to ask God, what would you have me to do? And when I come to that place, it's like a piece that I really can't understand. And things start falling in line. I'll get phone calls from people. I'll get emails from people. Opportunities will come up. And it's just so clear that God has a plan for me. And there are times where the things that I'm doing line up with his plan. And there's other times where he very clearly wipes them off the schedule and someone else takes care of those things. But in all the things that I want to get done next year, there's one thing I want to talk about to end this year because I do see a lot of hostility in, in, in next year. It's an election cycle. Uh, people are going to be completely manipulated by the media. It's already happening. Conversations, no doubt, dominated uh, <laughs> holiday uh, get-togethers this year, I'm sure, about what's going on politically with Trump and Biden and all these things about ballots and people being on them, people being off them. And people don't really know what they believe, so there's a big vacuum that the media just woof, rushes into. And if you remember 2020, when we had COVID happen and we had the riots and we had the protests and, and literally cities were burning. You guys remember those videos of just convenience stores going ablaze and looting and all sorts of stuff? And it was just like, what, what is happening? Yeah, it, was ha it happened here at a, at a Champions, I think, or, or some, I think it was a shoe store by Tyrone Square Mall. It was literally ablaze. And you're going, what's going on? Well, there's an agenda. The, the, the little G God of this world, Satan, he's got a lot of things working right now. The Antichrist is being prepared. That's my belief. But to end this year, we have one more set of messages on Sunday, but as far as prayer meeting is concerned, I want to focus on this word compassion. It's a very important word. It's a very odd word. It has a specific definition. When you think of compassion, you might think of somebody who's really, really passionate. They want to help people. Uh, and you'd be right a little bit. But there's a Hebrew meaning to this word that I think is really important. I want you to imagine the core of who you are, like where you feel things. For example, when, you're, when something good happens, where you feel that. When something bad happens, where you feel that. And I think we can all say it's in the pit of our stomach, almost at the center of our being. You know, when we pledge allegiance to the flag, we're like, 
you put your hand over your heart. Heart's more, you know, in this area. It's not really all the way over here. But that core of who we are, we, we feel things there. And it's interesting when you look at the Hebrew understanding of compassion, it is from that pit of the stomach. Literally, it means the, the bowel of the person, not our bowels physically, but the depth and seat of the emotional value. And of that, two things describe compassion. It is pity and empathy. So you can have pity on somebody, and in our culture today, that's really viewed in a negative way. I don't know why. You can have pity on somebody and bless them as a result of their condition. But the empathy is what I really want to focus on because that'll drive the pity as well. Being empathetic is being sensitive to people's need. And if we're going to close this year, in in a couple of days, we're going to turn over to 2024. If there's one thing I want to carry from this year into next year, it's to be sensitive to people's need, to realize that everybody is going through something. It is so easy to become self-centered and put blinders onto the world. I do a lot of... um, research on you know people that are are trained to protect themselves and protect others and you know there's a lot of people that have concealed carry permits and they carry weapons and you know we there's a right for us to do that and thank god we have that right in this country but there's one guy that i have come across recently that in all of his everyday carry videos he's always saying be kind to people de-escalate as much as you can i think right now as christians there's a lot of need for kindness and de-escalation. Uh, think about when you're soul winning with somebody, you're sharing the gospel with them. You can really say the gospel clearly, and you can do a good job of communicating it, but the way you say it stops them from understanding. You can get the information out and go, I got the information out, but you left that person bruised and bloodied and battered. You haven't really done them any good. The Bible in years past has been used as kind of like a whip on people. It almost makes it seem like, and they would, people would disagree. They say, no, I wouldn't say that. But it almost makes it seem like you hate sinners. It's like you have to be perfect like me in order for God to accept you. And we start forgetting, because we're not compassionate, we start forgetting that people are going through a lot. And people are masters at faking what's going on. They have been putting that mask on every single day. I'm not talking about the COVID mask. I'm talking about, how you doing? I'm fine. Everything's great. They have mastered that response. And sometimes we can do a lot of damage when we forget this very important motivator called compassion. I got two points for you tonight. The first one is about compassion in relation to how we win the lost person, how we see them and see their need and then compassion towards the church. I, I, I'm, I'm changing the way I think of that phrase, the church, right? Not into anything outside of what the Bible says, but for a long time when I think of the church, I think of here. I think of pews, sound equipment, songs and hymns and stuff. But I am changing my mind to now when I think of the church, I think of faces and people. Because that, that's what the church is. It's a called out assembly. This is a building, And may I say so confidently, this is God's building. I have seen in the last three years how God has provided for this physical property. And I share that with you as often as I can because 
This is his building, his roof, his air conditioning, his foundation lifting. He's taking care of all of it. But this could all go away. A, a fire could happen and this could be destroyed. Vandals could come in and, and, and destroy it. Does the church die too? Does our faith die too? <coughs> no, it doesn't. It continues on because the church is its people. And I've been changing the way that I think when I, when I think of the church. I think of people's faces and of individuals and their stories and their prayer requests and their praise reports that have been answered. But the second point I have is compassion towards one another in the church. Those who are already saved. Folks, I got news for you. It may sound like bad news now, but trust me, it'll be good news. The person on your left, the person on your right, you're going to be with them for eternity. Okay? Now, we all have a sinful nature right now, and that can make some of us go, oi. And for every person you go, oi, to, someone may go, oi, to you, you know? <laughs> but there's sin that gets in the way now. But we're instructed to be kind towards one another, to be empathetic from our bowels, from that pit of who we are, to let that spring forward in the action of compassion. There's a story here in Mark chapter 6 and verse 30, and it's where Jesus is he, he's about to feed the 5,000. And he's, he's walking around. The disciples are with him. People are hungry. Okay, there's no doubt about that. People have a literal hunger. The bellies are grumbling for food. But Jesus takes care of something before that, and then he provides their physical need. Look at what is said in verse 30 here. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, told him all things, both what they had, had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. So the apostles are hungry. They've been doing this ministry. They're hungry. Verse 32, And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing. So you can, you can I think it's safe to assume that Jesus was a very well-known person in his culture. And the very sight of him, people thought, he can solve my problems. He can heal people. I need to get to him. Whatever that is, I need to get to him. So you can even, I believe, safely conclude that people were seeking him out. You can see that proven here. When the people saw, and the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out, went, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, now you know that they were traveling by ship, verse 32, to a, to a desert place. So when they had gotten off and gotten into this remote place, the people had followed them. And Jesus makes an observation here. When he came out, he saw. This is very important. He was aware of what was happening around him, and he saw as it says here, much people, lots of people. And as a result of this, in just him seeing, we can conclude what was happening in internally. And the scripture shows us what was happening with our Savior here. He was moved with, from the pit of his being, empathy, pity towards these people. And what's really nice about this passage is you can see why he was empathetic towards them. 
Look at what it says. Because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus, he's doing ministry with his, with his apostles. These are the, the ones who are called into service. They're, they believe on who he is. He's taking care of them, but he stops when he sees those that are without. He does not see them as ignorant and stupid, misinformed, an annoyance, uh, filthy, rotten sinners. He sees them as a sheep with no leader. This is very important. I want you to see what Jesus is seeing here. He's not seeing the symptoms. He's seeing the person suffering from the symptoms. There's somebody behind that. When you have somebody in your life who is dealing with sin and they're not saved and they're living a life that is not good for them, you have to be like our Savior and see their need is not necessarily deliverance from this sin right now. They need a Savior who will pay for that sin. But if we're not careful, we begin to wall up. I'm going to talk to everybody except this kind of person and that kind of person and this kind of situation. Who are you going to, who are you going to talk to? Yankee would tell me when I, when I would still go and talk to him about ministry and stuff. And, you know, he would tell me one of the things he learned was you got to learn how to work with people that you might not like. And he said, if you only work with people that you like, in 10 years, you'll work with yourself. And that'll be difficult. <laughs> and that, there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? You got you to deal with people, and as they grow, you, you give them that opportunity. What Jesus is showing us here is that he had compassion because these people, regardless of their condition, they had no leader. They're wandering around in the darkness. And he knows he's the solution. Now, he gave them what they needed spiritually first. What did he do? Well, first of all, he acted. He was prepared, he saw the need, and he acted. And his act was, he taught them many things. Then verse 35 comes into play. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, this is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country, round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So the disciples are weary of the service. Now, this is not to make them the big bad guys, you know, but they're, they've got a human nature and a flesh nature that is driving them to the point of, we're done with ministry. We're tired. It's been far too long. Let them go and eat, and we'll continue in rest. Verse 37, Jesus responds. He answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they said, Five loaves and two fishes. He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the grass. So in groups, he put them together. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all, and they did all eat. Now, mathematically, we look at this and we know there were at least two ranks of hundreds and two ranks of fifties, at least. So that's more than seven. I'm confident of that. But by the time that Jesus had performed this miracle, 
they were all filled. That doesn't mean they ate enough and, and, and they went on in hunger. They were all filled. And look at verse 30, uh, 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves, now we have the mathematical equation solved for us, were about 5,000 men. There are a lot of parallels here. But it is all built off of, I believe, verse 34. Jesus taught from his depth of knowledge. Then I think that was also demonstrated in his ability to provide food for 5,000 from seven pieces of food. But note that there was more available after they were filled. There was more that Jesus could do for them after they had filled themselves. This, I think, is a great, I'm not saying this is a direct uh, interpretation, but it's a great application to what is available to us in God's Word. And for us that are saved, people who have come to faith in Christ and we're learning to rightly divide the Word, there is a lot of ministry to be done. But that ministry is stopped when we're not compassionate. See, if we get out of our ship and we go into our desert place and we see sinners and that disgusts us and bothers us and is an inconvenience to us, we're not moved with compassion. We're not like our Savior in that regard. So there needs to be a change. We need to see those that are without and bring the loaves, bring the fishes, and feed them. And then when they've had their fill, offer more at a later time. <coughs> it's incredible to see what actually happened after this is recorded in John chapter uh, 6, and Jesus says some pretty strong words to this group because they were starting to trust him only for the physical. And he, he made some illustrations that I'm not going to get into right now. But that is the compassion we need. The, the, my point there is compassion is needed to see the need for the lost man. We need to have from the pit of our being empathy, compassion for those that are lost. For those that are living a wicked lifestyle, we need to have empathy and compassion to reach them, to look past their sin and their symptoms and see a soul that needs to be saved. We can't look at, this with, with, at them with disgust. I know that's getting harder and harder. I know that. But ask God to give you the strength that you need and He will give it to you. And then lastly, compassion is needed to love one another in the church. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is actually in a section dealing with how husbands and wives, uh, and, and wives should love one another. I'm pulling this one verse out, which is kind of the end cap to this statement, or uh, uh, to this address that was started in verse 1. But there's a lot of good application from it. It says, 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, be ye all of one mind. Now, as far as interpretation goes, which means what was the original intent here, Peter's writing to husband and wife. He says, you guys need to be of one mind. Also, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. We can still apply this to who we are in the body of Christ. This very clearly tells us that we should all be of one mind. Now, that doesn't mean we're all robots, robots. 
singing the same tune. I think a great way to look at the body of Christ is to look at a choir. There are four different parts. And in some pieces, like Handel's Messiah, for example, there are two altos, two soprano parts, two tenor parts, two bass parts. Everything is multiplied because there's more in the scale that can be harmonized to to create this sense of power and just dynamic beauty. I don't know how many of you guys have listened to professional choirs. Go do it sometimes, or sometime. It's amazing to hear how voices can just gel like that. We have a pretty good choir, very good, I would say, especially with that the microphone right there, where we can catch a lot of voices coming together. And I think that's what's impressive about what we're doing here at Calvary, because a lot of times other places, just like a lead singer and a backup singer. But this harmonizing together is how I think we should look at the body. You're singing your part as God has written for you. I'm singing the part he wrote for me. We're singing together different parts, but the same song. Do you understand? You can't do that if the alto player is trying to kill the soprano player. There's a problem there. That, the, here's what happens when you have that happen in the body. You have two parts that are not working correctly. One part thinks they're in self-defense. The other part thinks they're in self-defense, and they, they gnaw at each other. The other two are over here singing an incomplete harmony because these two are not doing what they're supposed to do. How do you solve that? You have the same mind. And I would venture to say from the study of all of 1 Peter, what's the same mind? Put those in front of your needs. Put others in front of your needs. If everybody does that, you have a pretty good place to be. Not only does it say one mind, but it uses that word compassion again with that Hebrew meaning. I know it's in Greek here, but it's derived from a Hebrew term. From the pit of one's being, empathy and pity. That's how we should look at our brother and sister in Christ. Not with annoyance and grievances, but with empathy. I think the reason why people end up leaving church is because they stop obeying God's instruction here. You start getting things like, I only believe in a home church. I've seen how all this ends up, and that's the first step. Well, sorry, the first step is, you guys don't teach deeply enough. I need more depth. And from that comes, well, I think home churches are better. I'm just going to do my own thing. I have situations in my mind where people have made that decision and they don't do anything for the Lord now. Not one thing. And talk about depth. No depth. I want to talk about home church. No home church. How do you think that happens? Because people stop being compassionate for one another. You start coming to church and expect, I'm here, feed me. It's all about me. Oh, my needs, this and that. But instead, you should come to church and say, how can I help? How are you doing? What's going on? Can I pray for you? There's been times where I've sat down next to people, asked them how they're doing, and they can't even get words out. And in that moment, you just sit there with them. That's it. That's work. That's compassion. You know, speak up. I can't hear you. No, no, no. That's that, you know, getting the, getting the prayer request for the sake of getting the prayer request is not the need. Being there for somebody as an advocate is the need. But if you view people without compassion, you can't do that. By the way, you want to know how you don't have empathy for others? 
you have pride. You're the most important thing in your life. Your hobbies, the things you want to do, the places you want to go, that is the biggest thing. But that's not it. The instruction here is love as brethren. Be pitiful, which is again repeating that compassion. But then there's another one here. Be courteous. What does it mean to be courteous? You're kind. And then verse 9 explains a little further. Not rendering evil for evil. We're not putting away, okay, I remember you said that, you know. I'm holding on to it all to one day unload. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. But contrawise, blessing. How can you bless somebody? Knowing that you, ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. What's the, in, what's the blessing that we've inherited ultimately? Eternal life, folks. We've got that now. You're not waiting for it, by the way. You have it right now. <coughs> but we rob ourselves of that blessing of enjoying eternal life now when we just are looking to, you know, an eye for an eye. And there's a place for that. By the way, when that instruction is given in the Bible, that's the role of the government. The eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's how the government should uh, bring about justice. For you and I, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. And some people say, well, you know, 70 times 7, and they're counting. (laughs) The reason why that illustration is given is because it's innumerable how many times we should be willing to forgive others. If we lose sight of this, if, if we're going into 2024 and we're saying things like this, this is my year. I'm going to get things right with me. Me, 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 me. That's a problem, folks. I think the number, if, if, if there is a number one thing that we, as people who are already saved, if there's one thing that we can focus on, it's, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then you are ready to do what he tells you. Trust me. He will have instruction for you. He will. I want to share this with you, and you can close your Bibles while I do this. There's a, there's a section in the, in, in the Bible that I was raised to have fear about. And I don't really agree with it now, but the reason why I was told to be fearful about this part of the Scripture was because of what God would do when you prayed it. For a long time, I didn't even read the verses after I heard them the first time because I was so afraid. That's what I was being taught. And it wasn't until something happened significantly in my life where what this individual had told me, I now started to look with a different intent. And I read these verses, and I don't see the fear that I was taught to see in them anymore. I'm going to read them to you. And when I read them to you, I want you to read them and listen to them as a prayer. It is a prayer. It's a part of a prayer. But recognize what the person praying is asking God to do. Here's the verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. I don't think you should be afraid of that prayer. That should be the prayer of every 
leader in the home. That should be the prayer of every person who's working in ministry. For the Lord to search you and to pinpoint areas of need, and then, as that thing says, lead me in the way everlasting. God will lead you. The question is, are you going to follow? When I started understanding the depth of these verses, I would ask that constantly. I remember every day asking God to search me, to know my heart, because I can deceive myself. How many of you have deceived yourselves before? Yes, we all have. Isn't it good to know that there's an option for clarity? There's someone who can actually know the truth. We can deceive ourselves to think something is not true. You know the first thing I started praying this verse about? How I believe a man is saved. It's the first thing I started asking God. I started asking Him. I know what the Bible says, but I'm getting a lot of attack. People would come after me and they'd use verses that I had never seen used in a certain way, and I started asking God, show me that this is right. And he has. There's very few places in the Bible where I'm not confident of a proper interpretation. That's not a big pat on my back because I read a bunch of books. I asked God to give me the wisdom. And then I was obedient to follow what he told me to do. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any wicked way in me, will there be a wicked way? Yes, yes. But know that God is willing to lead you in the way of everlasting life. Not the way of everlasting life as in salvation, but the way of life here that brings about blessings from that everlasting life that we have. That's Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. And I think you'd be wise to memorize that scripture and to ask God. And some people, this is when I was told about that verse about why it should be big, scary, scary. It's because God's going to judge you. He's, he's going to make your sin known. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. You are a temple. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've been bought with the price, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. If God's going to deal with you, He's going to deal with you on a one-on-one case and give you an opportunity to get right. You continue on in that sin after it's been addressed. Now God will bring outside people. He'll make that sin known. What was David's problem? He hid the sin. He hit it and hit it and hit it. He was so deceived that when Nathan gave the illustration that was clearly about him, David said, kill that man. And Nathan turned the biggest table ever and said, thou art the man. And what was said to David? What you have done, you have hidden, but God will reveal it before Israel and all under the sun. That was a man who didn't get right with God after multiple attempts. That's the same man who prayed this prayer. A lot to learn there. And not from, you know, an eight-point series, but from actual application and implementation of that verse. But I want to ask you, are you a compassionate person? Do you look at those who have yet to come to faith in Christ and are, you're, moved to compa- you're, you're moved with compassion to serve them, to meet them where they are? Are you compassionate towards your brother and sister in Christ? Are you willing to be courteous, to be pitiful, to be kind, to not render evil for evil or railing for railing, but for blessing? I can't answer that question, and I'm not here to answer that question for you, but I do 
want to lovingly lay it before you and ask, would you, would you pray on these things? And all the plans you have for next year, would you say, what can I do today? Just look at it that way, right? If we look at the next 365 days, we can go, whoa, <laughs> I'm not ready. But if we look at today, that's a lot easier to do. I love being your pastor. It's, it's a blessing. It really is. And it's fun. But I also want to make sure that I'm leading by example. You know, this message, when I was thinking about the title a month ago, I thought, there are some things I need to learn from this too. It can become very easy to get jaded and irritated. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see any of that. He's so patient with me. And I want to give that back. But I want you to be people like that too. My greatest desire for this ministry to grow, and I know it will grow if, if, if we're all on the same page of one mind. But if we're sitting here thinking we're some haven of America, you know, we're, we got real values over here and everybody else has to get on our level before we can serve them, folks, this place will be gone. And even in the time that it is here, it won't be used in a way to bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. Can you imagine if at the end of every service, instead of giving a gospel invitation, I asked how you voted last year? There are churches like that. There are churches that are more concerned with politics than they are with a person's soul. Guess what? When we get to heaven, no Republicans. No Democrats either. No independents. No light. We'll have the Son of God. He'll be the light. We don't have to wait until we get there to live our lives like that. I got some stuff for you too on a Sunday morning, so I'm looking forward to that. How do we know we're going to heaven when we die? And we use this illustration to communicate how a person can have assurance they're going to heaven. This hand represents you and me. This block of sin represents sin. Put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, he loves us very much. He hates sin because it separates us from him. If sin had to be paid, and it does have to be paid, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. It's not good works. It's not being a good person. Those things don't pay for sin. Somebody has to pay that price with the shedding of blood. We have to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven. That's why we're sinners. We fall short. Got to be perfect. No matter how much you start today, someone has to pay for what you did yesterday. We have a problem. And God in His love sent His Son. Uh, let that, this hand represent Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus came down, lived a perfect life because He is God. And He offered Himself on that cross of Calvary. And He took all that sin, laid it upon Himself. He was buried and He rose again three days later. The significance of His statement on the cross is it is finished means this the payment has been made, and it's been accepted by God. He was buried and rose again three days later. And he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the moment of salvation when the sinner places their faith in the Savior, whose name is Jesus Christ. That sin is paid for. They now are given everlasting life, the righteousness of God, in God's courtroom, they are justified 
they will no longer be condemned. No matter what life brings and how they choose to act, after that they are redeemed eternally by simple faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who shed His blood and died for their sins. They're eternally secured. Nothing could ever change that. This is the kind of compassion we need when we look at the lost and dying world. When the news shows us all this horrible stuff, we should look past it and see the person. The person. People need the Lord. Amen? Let us introduce them. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here tonight. I pray for those in attendance who are already saved. They're your children, Lord. I pray that we would be moved with compassion from the depth of who we are with empathy and that it would move us to action to serve those, to share the gospel. And then, Lord, internally in the church, the people, that we would love one another, be of the same mind. Different parts in the song, but the same song. And Father, I pray for those who may be watching and have not put their trust in you. I pray that they will. In Jesus' name, I pray these things.